You alone know my heart. I'm not even sure I know it. You know me better than I know myself. You know each one of these people. I believe in your providence and in your sovereignty. You have brought people here today that needed to be here. Some of them may have not planned to be in worship today, and for some reason they just felt like they needed to be here. And I pray before the next half an hour or so are done, they will understand why. I believe there are some people that had every intention of being here today, and for some reason or another, something came up and they were not able to. And I can't imagine in my understanding why that would be, but I trust you. And I would ask you to watch over us in these next few moments. I ask that you would help us to hear your word speak. I know that I am not worthy to share what you've placed, this burden that you have placed on my heart. These messages that these people, your people, are going to hear you say to them through me. But I'm reminded again that it is not about the messenger, it is about the message. And I pray, if nothing more, that I will be a clear vessel. Um, I know I won't be perfect, but may I be clear so that your word will not be hindered by any roadblocks that I might put in the way. We are bowing our heads in your presence right now, acknowledging the fact that you are here and you are God and we are not. And so may everything that is done in these next few moments be done to your honor and glory. For the sake of Christ, for the work of your kingdom, and for the testimony that you have called us to bear to this community and through us to the world, we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Hosea, chapter 10. Hosea chapter 10. We are beginning a series of messages called Seeking His Face. We have talked since the last day of January about the need for us to exchange mirrors that reflect our images back to ourselves into windows that will help us to see out into a lost world, but always with the understanding that those windows then lead to doorways that send us out as we share. But we also talked about the fact that in order to do that, we have to make sure that not only are we people who are involved in inviting, which is why I've asked you to write down seven names of people that you are hoping to pray about inviting to come with you on Easter Sunday morning, but we have to be inviting people. We have to be people that have something in them that people would look at us and say, I wish I were more like that. Not to our glory, but to the glory of the one who has saved us and is cleansing us and is redeeming us and is continuing to wash us and form us into the image of Christ. So that like that song we sang at the opening, let it be said of us that we were faithful, that Christ was our passion. So to that end, this is the message the Lord has for us today. Bob was the kind of guy that um, any church would be proud to have as a member. He had a good-looking guy, beautiful wife, lived in a lovely home, wonderful kids, several successful business ventures. Had a wonderful reputation in the community and in his church. Just the kind of person that you're just glad to have as a part of your church. Member. 
he might have been a little bit ostentatious there, a little bit maybe every now and then, but not really. He wasn't prideful or anything. He just was successful. And, um, and yet in some ways, like that parable that Jesus told of the farmer, he just kept building bigger and bigger barns for himself. And then one day, they had a revival, a series of services in their church, kind of like what we had about a year and a half ago here with Life Action folks. And Bob began to feel convicted. He began to realize that really spiritually he was very bankrupt and blind. He, he thought he was fine. I mean, he came to church every Sunday. He was a faithful tither. I mean, he calculated down to the penny his 10% and, and made sure that it was given to the Lord. And everything seemed to be good and everything seemed to be fine. And all of a sudden, he just began to, to ache in his heart to the point that when he had to go on a two-day business trip, he actually was relieved. He could get away for a couple of days from those nightly services. But it didn't help him because the Holy Spirit went with him on the plane and continued to convict him in the hotel room. And when he got back and came to the last Sunday of the services and the pastor was preaching on the story of Naaman. You remember Naaman, the Syrian general who had a wonderful life. Everything was going well for him, successful, powerful. Only one problem, he had leprosy. And so he went to be healed, and he just didn't want to do it God's way. So he did what Bob said, exactly what I would have done, probably what most of us would have done. He gathered up all the money he had, his gold and his silver, and he went and he was going to buy, us, buy an answer. And in the middle of that sermon, Bob was struck by the Holy Spirit. He said, Bob, that is you, my friend. You are sick. You are not listening to me. And, in, and Bob, in the only way he knew how, fell in his heart to his knees and says, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? And he said he heard in his spirit God say two words to him, submission and obedience. And Bob surrendered everything he was, everything he had, all of his successes, everything he knew to the Lordship of Christ, and his life began to change. Does that sound familiar to any of you? I've had some Bob moments in my life. Almost 45 years of serving Christ, I've had Bob moments. When I thought I was doing so well, and I suddenly realized how far I had drifted away from God. And I began to long for God to bring me back to himself. I was like the writer of the Psalms in, in Psalm 86 when they say, will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your faithful love, Lord, and give us your salvation. Surely the Lord will declare peace to his people, his godly ones, and not let them go back to foolish ways. His salvation is near to those who fear him so that glory may dwell in our We're going to be thinking about what revival means. I don't mean a set of meetings. I don't mean coming together every week or every night. I, I'm talking about true spiritual renewal in our lives as individuals and as a church. Because if there's ever been a church that needed revival, it is the one I'm standing in today. We need to be renewed in our spirits. So I wrote down a definition of what revival is. Revival is what happens when God's people, whether individually or corporately, are restored to a right relationship with Him. And believe me, God wants nothing more than to draw His people back to Himself when they have wandered away from Him. 
And over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the different elements that go into that. I fully expect that many of us, if not all of us, are going to be uncomfortable at times. I beg of you to let the Holy Spirit guide you and be here so that you can listen as God speaks into your heart. Listen as He reveals to you what it is He wants you to do specifically in your relationship with Him because God wants it more than anything. He desires to restore us to the relationship that He wants us to have with Him. You know, probably last week, Pastor Darrell referred to the whole idea of, of, of harvesting and winnowing and I didn't hear his sermon. I let him, he wrote it as he felt the Lord leading him, but we were, he was talking about the parable of the, the wheat and the weeds. And, and most of us have been in church long enough to understand the, the idea, you know, about the, the winnowing fork and, and how you would take the, the wheat after it had been broken and, and, and beaten and the chaff, the, the husks that come, and they would, they would toss it in the air and they would have a big fan that was made out of palm branches and they would wave the fan back and forth. And as they tossed in the air, that chaff would fly away and the wheat would fall back to the ground. But what you may not know is how the wheat got from harvested to ready to be cleansed. How did that happen? What was the process? Well, here's what they would do. When they would go out harvesting in the wheat field, they would break the stalk. They would break the head of wheat off at the top of the stalk. First of all, they did not what we do in America. They never, in their minds, we would pick our stuff so green. They would wait until it actually started drying on the stalk, okay? And almost brittle because they knew they were going to grind the, the, the wheat into flour. And so they didn't want it to be full of moisture. And so they would let it sit way past what we would in today's market, in today's world. And then they would go through the field. They would carry either a bag or a, or a basket. And they would break the heads of wheat off and toss them in the basket. Toss them in the bag. And they would just walk down hours and hours, one at a time by hand. Break those heads of wheat off. Throw them into the basket. Throw them into the bag. And then at the end of the day, they would come together tired, sweaty. They would have a meal. They would take all of the wheat they had gathered that day, and they would throw it into a th onto the threshing floor. And they would bring in one of the oxen or a cow. And that ox, that cow, would begin walking around on top of those heads of wheat. And you could just hear the cracks and the snaps and the pops as he walked around, breaking those heads of wheat apart. And you would hear that crackling as the husk would break away from it. And if you remember, there's a verse in Deuteronomy that Paul quoted when he was talking about supporting ministers. What it says, don't muzzle the ox that treads the corn. Remember that line? If the ox was hungry, he'd lean over and give himself a mouthful. Man, what a life. Walk around that threshing floor, pounding on that wheat, and grabbing him a mouthful whenever he wanted it. And then once it all was done, they would begin the process of winnowing it, and then they would gather it, and then they would all go to bed and have a good night's rest and do it all over again tomorrow. Now, usually, this job of being the threshing animal would be rotated around. But Hosea, God inspires Hosea in the passage that Jerry read for us just a moment ago to imagine what it would be like if you were the cow or the ox, and that was your entire job, was doing nothing but threshing. Every day, had a nice morning, stayed in the stall, slept in, had a little bit of hay. End of the day, they call you and they take a little rope and tie it around your neck and take you over to the threshing floor. And there you go. Start your threshing. Oh, man, just enjoying that fresh wheat off the ground. Eating it away, enjoying every bit of it. Now, what would happen to a cow that did that every single day? Well, after a while, they would get pretty lazy, wouldn't they? 
they start to get pretty fat. Eat all they want. Don't muzzle him up. Let him eat whatever he wants. He's going to thresh out that grain. And he would forget all the hard work that goes on out in the field. He would forget all those other oxen or those other cattle that have to get out there with a yoke on their necks and pull that plow and take care of that harvesting and take care of all the work. He would just enjoy walking around the threshing floor, eating and walking and walking and eating and enjoying all the bounty of the harvest. And so God wanted the people of Israel to understand how far they had gotten away from him. And so he says in verse 11 of chapter 10 of Hosea, Ephraim is a well-trained calf that loves to thresh. Man, they love tromping around in all that grain and just eating whatever they wanted. They enjoyed the bounty of all that had been gathered. Did they think about how it was gathered? No, it didn't matter to them. Did they think about what hard work it was? No, they didn't care. All they knew was they got to thresh and eat and eat and thresh and get fatter and fatter every day. They'd been doing that so long that the calluses on the back of their neck from those yoke had, had been smoothed out. And there was nothing there anymore but a nice soft neck. And God says, Ephraim, Israel, that's exactly what's happened to you. All these years I have blessed you. All these years I have been with you. And you've become so accustomed to it that you've forgotten what it takes to get a harvest. You've just enjoyed the blessings of it. And every day you go about your life, you've forgotten the God who provides you with what you need. And you put more trust in what you have than you do in the one who gave it to you. You put your trust in your own ability, your trust in your own riches, your trust in your own power, your trust in your own prestige, your trust in your own success, your trust in all the things, forgetting the fact that it was I that gave them to you. And then God gives them in verse 12 a line that for those of us that grew up in church have heard hundreds and hundreds of times, break up your fallow ground. It is time for us to seek the Lord. You see, all of those years, they've been enjoying all the bounty of God. All these years, they've been gathering up. And all of those years, those fields, those spiritual fields in their lives had lain, hard, lain hardened and untilled. Now, I'm not a farmer nor the son of a farmer. I'm the grandson of a farmer. But I've been told that the longer you let a field sit, the harder it gets to plow. Because the rain falls on it, the thistles and the thorns and the weeds and other stuff grows up in it. You're turning it a couple of times a year, it's fairly easy to replow it in the spring, and get ready to plant again. But if you let it sit for a year or two or three or five or 10 or 12 or 15 or 18, it is hard work. And he, tests, he says, Ephraim, I'm going to take you and I'm going to put a yoke on your neck. And you're going to have to pull that steel plow through that hardened ground because we have got to get back to the work of having a fresh harvest. God says, this is the work that we have to do. It's the work that I have to do in my life. It's the work that every one of us needs to do as we have wandered away from the Lord and forgotten the intimacy that we once had with him. And we've begun to rely more on what he gives us than on the one who gives it to us. He says there in verse 13, you have plowed wickedness, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in your large number of soldiers. They had become 
confident in themselves, in their own ability. They were just like Naaman. They thought, if I take enough gold and enough silver, I can buy my way. They were just like that farmer who says, if I just build bigger barns and have bigger things and have bigger stores, then I will be happy and I'll have everything that I need. And we forget the God who called us and our lives become fallowed ground, our spiritual lives our quiet time that used to be getting up an hour early in the morning so we could have time with the Lord becomes a five-minute devotion through our daily bread or open windows. A time of extended prayer for people becomes a quick prayer between the car and the office. Time spent with God's people becomes an hour on a Sunday morning. And we wander and our fields become unplowed, and we wonder why there's not a bigger harvest spiritually in our lives. God wants more than anything to bring us back to the place where we are vital and harvestable and yielding the fruit of spiritual lives because the reason that so many churches are not drawing people to Christ is because there's nothing in us that they can see any different than they are. So why bother? Why go to all the trouble? My life is just as good as theirs. I'm just as happy as they are. What difference does it make whether I believe in Jesus or not? And you see, the thing we have to understand is that God will do whatever it takes to bring us to himself. Some of you will remember a couple of years ago, we spent a lot of Sunday nights in the book of Hosea. We walked our way through Hosea. And we learned about how those Israelites, those, those ten tribes, and remember, we're still God's people, even though they had separated from the two tribes of the south. God still loved them. He still had delivered them from Egypt. They could have easily, easily served Him faithfully. But they began to trust in their own riches. They began to trust in their own power. They began to trust in their own prestige. They began to trust in their own leaders. And so God began to chip things away from them one thing at a time. He took away their power. He took away their armies. He took away their... Their, 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 their alliances with other nations. He took away their financial wealth. He took away their bountiful harvest until they had nothing left and they still wouldn't turn back to him. And so finally he says, what am I to do with you? And you say, well, but pastor, why does God do, why would God do that? Was, was he angry with them? Was he, was he frustrated with them? Well, I'm sure there was some frustration. But we ask the same question when it happens to us, don't we? We're doing so well. We put so much confidence in ourselves, our own abilities. And, and then sure, we'll show up, a, throw up a, a thanks to God. Thanks, God, for my wonderful job. And thanks for my smoking hot wife. And thanks for this and thanks for that. But for the most part, we live our lives as if, well, so do any of you remember the old scene from Jimmy Stewart when he's praying after his wife dies and are around the table and he says, Lord, we know we're supposed to thank you for all this bountiful harvest you've given us, even though we're the ones that planted the crops and we're the ones that had to get out there and farm it and we're the ones that had to bring it in and we're the ones that had to cook it. But Okay, amen. Well, it may not be quite that crass. What motivates God to do that? What motivates God to begin chipping away at the things that we put our trust in so that we begin to feel this need to be brought back to Him and we have this desire to be renewed in our relationship with Him? There's one thing and one thing only that does it, and you can see it right in chapter 11 of Hosea, right where you are. Turn one page to chapter 11. You may not have to turn a page. Listen to what it says in verse 1 of chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I what? I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the more they departed from me. 
They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. But it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them in my arms. But they never knew that I healed them. I led them with human cords, with ropes of love. To them, I was like one who eases the yoke from their jaws. I bent down to give them food. So you see, before he began this time of judgment, God says, I loved you. I called you out of Egypt. I brought you to this place. I carried you in my arms. And the reason I am bringing you back to myself is not because I'm angry with you, not because I'm trying to punish you. It's because I love you. If you want to know for sure that, turn over a couple more pages to chapter 14. Now that he's brought judgment on them, now that he's begun to punish them, now they begin to lose all things about their condescend, now they're beginning to gripe and grumble and complain. I thought God was there for us. I thought God always loved us. I thought God was going to be good to us. I thought God was going to do all these wonderful things for us. What's going on? God says in verse four, in chapter 14, verse 1, Israel, return to Yahweh your God, for you have stumbled in your sin. Take words of repentance with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sin and accept what is good so that we may repay you with praise from our lips. Assyria will not save us. He will not, we will not ride on horses. We will no longer proclaim our gods to the work of our hands for the fatherless receives compassion in you. And this is what he says in verse four. I will heal their apostasy. I will freely love them for my anger will have turned from them. You see, before they fell into sin, God loved them. After they fell into sin, God loved them. Even as he was punishing them, disciplining them, God loved them. And he said, I'm doing this because I care about you, because I love you. And if you today find yourself sitting uncomfortably in your seat thinking, I have wandered away from the Lord. I am not who I should be. I am not what God wants me to be. Let me understand, help you understand that God is not angry with you. He loves you. And he wants you to be back in his arms again. He wants you to be close to him again. He will not rest until he makes you so uncomfortable that you will have no other place to turn but to him. And so the question becomes, what is our responsibility? What do we do? How do we respond to that? Well, in order for me to answer that question for you, we've got to turn to the New Testament. Lest you think this is just an Old Testament concept. Turn all the way back in your Bibles, back to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. You see, just like the children of Israel, just like Ephraim, many of us, I would almost say all of us, I'm sure there are a few of us that are very, very faithfully serving, although if you're one of those, you're probably the most desirous of making sure that's where you are. You're sitting there right now saying, Lord, I believe this is where I am. I want to make sure. Let me open, I'm opening my heart. Tell me, show me areas in my life where I need to get back right with you. But for many of us, well, I think I'm doing just fine. I think I'm doing good. The only problem I have is that guy standing up in front of me. I wish he would do this, or I wish the only thing I've got I wish we could change was this Sunday schedule. The only thing I wish we could change is the color of the carpet of the Sunday school books we use. Or what is it with the, the finance committee? Why don't we have a budget yet? I don't understand what's going on around here. Things just aren't right. That's what's bothering me. No, that's not what's bothering you. What's bothering you is there's sin in your life. Now, those other things may all be legitimate things to discuss, but what's bothering you is the fact that you're not. Do you remember? Well, maybe you don't. When Sharon and I first got married, I love that girl so much we could have lived in a cave and I would have been fine. We could have lived under a rock. We could have lived the Fred Flintstone existence and I would have been perfectly happy. I love that girl so much it didn't matter where we lived or what we ate. We ate those little round cinnamon twirls, all those little pecan cinnamon twirls that you get in the little six-pack. That was our breakfast. And we loved each other. Oh, my goodness, and it was so wonderful. You remember when you were a new Christian? You remember? Well, let me just show you what, what John, what Jesus says through John in Revelation chapter 2. He's writing to the letter, the letters to the seven churches. And he starts with the church at Ephesus, that, 
anchor church, that solid church, that church that took a strong stand for what was right. The church that said, we are going to do everything by the book. We are going to stand firm for Christ. We're going to do what he wants us to do. We're going to endure. We're not going to tolerate these things. And he praises them for all that. I know your works, it says in verse 2, your labor, your endurance. You cannot tolerate evil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You all possess endurance. You've tolerated many things because of my name. You've not grown weary, verse 4. But I have this against you. And they said, really? Us? I mean, I think you're talking about Red, I mean, Laodicea, or maybe, I mean, um, but, but not, not us. I mean, we're Ephesus. We're we're fine, aren't we? I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Those are haunting words to a powerful church, isn't it? That's a haunting message to a church that thought they were doing everything right. You've lost your first love. And there's three things he tells them they have to do. Number one, you have to remember. Go back and remind yourself of what it was like when you were walking close with me. Remind yourself of what it was like when you fell in love with me for the first time. Remind yourself what your life was like when you could not get enough of my presence. Remind yourself what it was like when you weren't so busy amassing for yourself the things that you thought you needed in life and you forgot that I'm the one that gives you everything that you need. You don't have to be careful for tomorrow because tomorrow will take care of its own things. You just need to follow me. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, and the rest. Follow me. Remember where you were. Recognize that you're not there anymore. You are here now. You used to be there. And I was the apple of your eye. I was the fruit of every day. I was the end of every conversation. I was the thing you talked about more than anything else in the world. You talked about me, and you talked about how much you loved me, and how much I loved you, and how much you wanted your friends to know me. And now you are here, and you barely even mention my name. And once you remember where you were and you recognize how far you have come, repent. Now, we've used that word enough times. Every one of you in this room knows what it means to repent. It means to turn from going one direction and begin going a different one. Make a 180-degree turn and go back. And the third thing is when you repent, begin doing again the things that you did. Now, I don't want to get too deep into this because we don't have time, but let me just say this to you. He could have said, remember and do again. You know why he didn't, I think? Because I have counseled with many, 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 many young couples and older couples too who have fallen out of love with each other, or so they call it. I just don't love her the way I did. I just don't love him anymore. And usually the one who's been lambasted by the other one by the side of a baseball bat that they want a divorce or they want, you know, changes to make, they go, oh, my. I know I used to bring her flowers. That's what I'll bring her flowers every Friday. I'll go back to bringing her flowers every Friday. Let's see, what else did I do? Oh, I, I know I, I didn't make her fix dinner on Saturday. I, I cook steaks on the grill. I'll start cooking dinner again on Saturday night. You see, if you do all without the change of heart, it's, it doesn't mean anything. Ladies, am I, am, I, am I seeking the truth? He can do all the right things, but if his heart isn't right, it doesn't make any difference, does it? And so Jesus says to John, listen, you need to remember, then you need to repent, change your mind, change your attitude, and then begin doing those things again. Get back to what you were once doing, and you'll find that that love is reborn, rekindled, 
in your hearts and in your lives. Beloved, we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about what it takes to have a life that is fully surrendered to Christ. A life that is completely abandoned to Him. A life filled with passion so that the next time we sing, let it be said of us, we will say it with tears in our eyes. And we will say, yes, Lord, let it be said that Christ was my passion. He was my life. He was everything to me. That's Mr. Otteson's testimony. And here in a few days, we're going to bring his body right here to this spot. And we're going to remember his passion for Christ and for the gospel. And we're going to be talking about that. But today, as we begin this process, the question I ask in the title of today's sermon is revival. Who needs it? Who needs it? Who needs it. I'll tell you one person that does. I do. I do. I let myself get so worried about attendance charts and giving figures that I forget that this is still Jesus Christ's church. He says on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church. And I may not understand why he does what he does. But my job is to be so in love with him if nothing else, all of you will say, we have a pastor who is like a burning torch that we can see in the darkness of the night of our life. When we find out by a phone call that our son is dead. There's someone there that I can say, I see the light in the midst of my darkness. When a man who on Wednesday was walking down the hall of the hospital and Friday night they're pulling the shroud over his face, Mrs. Wadden, Mrs. Otis can say, I can see the light in the midst of the darkness of my heart right now. The darkness of fear and not understanding. I need to be renewed in my spirit. And I have a feeling I'm not the only one. I have a feeling I'm not the only one. And so here's what I want you to do right now. Close your Bible. Put it on the side. This is for you. If you're at the beacon watching this at the beacon, I want you to do it. Even though I'm not going to be there to hold you accountable, I want you to do it as well. I want you to get your laps empty. I want you to take your hands, put them on your legs, put them on your knees. Bow your heads together with me and we'll make a prayer. No, this is not some exercise in showmanship. This is to give you the opportunity in a way that only you will see where we're going to go from here. I have two questions I want to ask you. The first one is, do you need revival? Do you need to be spiritually renewed? Do you need, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, in the definition, to be restored to a right and full relationship with Him? Do you need that? Do you recognize that you need that? If so, I'm going to ask you to take one of your hands and just lift it in the air and hold it there with me. Do you need that in your life? Keep it up there. Because I'm going to give you something else. A little. Try to prop it up on your, on your 
ribs or something. He said, I recognize it. He said, I recognize the fact that I need that. Now, here's the second question. Do you want it? <laughs> There's lots of things I need that I don't want. Now, if you want it, I'm going to ask you to raise your other hand up. Now, we're not going to do a bunch of Pentecostals with our hands up in the air. This is just for you. One hand says, I need this. The other hand says, I want this. I desire this more than anything in my life. And you hold those hands right there while I pray. It's best you can. Father, you see our hands. I'm not accountable personally for any response anyone has made. This is up to you and your Holy Spirit who's working in people's lives. It's not my place to judge. It's not my place to even discern. This is your moment with your people. Some of them have raised one hand and said, yes, I know I need it, but I'm not sure I want it yet. I'm not ready for it yet. Father, I pray that you will convict and help them understand they will never be at peace with you until they believe. Some of them have raised both their hands and said, yes, I need it and I want it. And some of them haven't raised either of their hands. Okay, that's between them and you. But for those of us who have, Father, we want this process to begin today. We want this process to begin today and to continue moving forward. Now, with your heads bowed, you can put your hands down. I'll be getting tired. I want you to understand that we come from a tradition where public responses are very, very popular. Even to this day, 200 and some odd years after the Great Awakening, we still talk about the sawdust trail and the altar call. And it can be very helpful and healthy for us to do something tangible. But in my mind, you just did when you raised your hands. Okay? Now, I want you to know that I'm going to stand right down here in front of the Lord's table, and we're going to sing a response song. I would be honored to pray with you, to pray for you. I'd be honored to escort you over here to the steps where you can kneel and pray. There will be deacons around the room who will come and put a hand on your shoulder, and they will pray for you. If you ask them to, they'll even pray with you, but they'll definitely pray for you. One of the reasons I do that is because there may be other needs on your heart that have nothing to do with what you've just heard. And you just need to come before the Lord and bring that prayer, bring that request to Him. But it may very well be that you say, Lord, I am not where I know I ought to be with you. I mean, I'm not the prodigal son, but I'm also not living in full surrender. And I need to have my life revived and renewed. And I want that. And I'm asking you to do whatever it takes to get me to that point. Because believe me, over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about some tough things that have to happen in order for that to happen. So, Father, in these next few moments, as we sing, as we respond, whether it's standing in the pew, whether it's at the altar, whether it's going to a friend to ask for forgiveness, Whatever it may be, as we do this, this is the time that we give for you to deal with us as individuals and corporately as a body. Whatever you do, we will take it as from your hand. For us in Jesus' name.